been in a series for several months now on the kingdom of God. And it's a three-part series. And we're in the second part of this series. And the first part of the series is the first uh, chapter and a half or so of Ephesians. talks about us being kingdom kids. That we are called by God in Christ to God to be his kids. We're adopted into his family as, as his children. And so we, we looked at those passages and we studied that for several months. And now we're in the second part of our series, which we've called Kingdom Family. And we're, we're looking at this shifted vocabulary that the Apostle Paul is using now. And we're in Ephesians chapter 3. And he's talking about not just us as individual children of God, but he's using a more collective language talking about the family of God. This idea that the kingdom of God looks like family. And so that's where we've been for the last several weeks, uh, certainly in this summer. Today we're in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And I'll be reading and teaching um, exclusively from the New American Standard Bible today. Um, the name of the sermon, the title of the sermon is Kingdom Family Maturity. The Apostle Paul talks about us maturing as a family in Christ. So let's read our passage, and then we'll pray. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Church, this, this is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your word. Thankful that you are a God who speaks. You have spoken and you continue to speak. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to receive the word of the Father today. We pray, Lord, as Paul is asking you for Christians to mature, that, God, we would receive that in our own lives. We would receive that in this little part of your family at Reality Ventura, and that we would grow and mature by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passage that we just read is a prayer. Paul has recorded a prayer, written it out for the Ephesian church, right? Remember, the letter. this is a letter to the church in Ephesus. He's written a letter to a church, and he's written out this prayer kind of in the middle of this letter. And it's a prayer that he writes down so that they would be able to read it for themselves. So he's not just praying like, like we often do for someone without them hearing our prayers, trusting God to work independently of our prayer. He's, he's also sharing this prayer with them. Uh, Paul is both praying for these Christians, and because he's written the prayer down, he's also teaching them how to pray and encouraging them in how to mature by sending them this prayer. And he starts off this prayer by reminding them 
that God is our Father. Ephesians 3.14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He doesn't use a, a just God or the Lord or, or any other very appropriate title for God. He uses, again, this vocabulary that we see throughout the book of Ephesians, this, the name of Father. And it might seem obvious, but our view of what God is like, to Paul, God is a Father. And he's teaching these, this younger church, this growing church in Ephesus, to think about and respond to God as a Father. How we think of God and what we think God is affects and shapes our hearts perhaps more than anything else. If you think that God is simply a creator who's not involved in his creation, then you're going to talk to him like you'd talk to a distant relative. When you pray to God, you'd pray something like this. Hey God, it's, it's me. I know it's been a long time and so much has happened since the last time we spoke. I should probably catch you up on all the details, right? Because you're praying to a, a, a distant creator God. Or if you think God is more like a landlord, right? Someone who's just checking in on you. He just wants you to pay your rent and don't break anything. Then your prayers are going to be like deposits that you make to God. You're, you're going to pray along these lines. You're going to say, well, God, here, yeah, I'm just checking in, just paying my dues, just saying and doing what I need to do in order to cover my bases, take care of what's required of me. See, our view of who God is forms how we talk with God, and it shapes how we respond to God. Jesus asks a poignant question in Mark chapter 8. Right before he uh, goes to the cross, he gathers his disciples together, and he asks Peter in front of everybody, right, because Peter's a bit of a loud mouth, and it's kind of always fun to call a loud mouth out in front of everybody. And he's like, who do people say that I am? And Peter gives him, you know, well, a, a prophet, a teacher, a, a good person, right? Someone who hears from God and talks about the things of God. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? See, what mattered wasn't what the people thought of Jesus. What mattered is what his disciples, his followers, his children, those that he had called to himself, thought of Jesus. Who do you say that I am? And it's a, it's a good, timely question for us today as we look at the very beginning of this prayer. Who do you say the Father is? Who is God to you? Is he a Father? Is he a distant God? Throughout our study of Ephesians, Paul has been teaching us that God is our Father, and we are his children. And so this idea of a heavenly father, it strikes a balance between intimacy and reverence, right? Heavenly refers to, you know, is, speaks to the reverence, the reverent heart with which we approach God. And father, heavenly father, the word father speaks to the intimacy which, with which we're able to enter into the presence of God. So there's this, this reverent intimacy that Paul is speaking to here. See, intimacy without reverence is simply just emotional sentimentalism. And reverence without intimacy is simply legalism and heartless submission. But intimacy and reverence represent the love and the presence of a father. We love our father. We know our father loves us, but our father is our father, and we respect him, and we honor him in a special way. Intimacy and reverence speak to the relationship that we're invited into with God. And so we see, as Paul starts this letter, that prayer is not a ritual that we perform in order to get something from God, 
but prayer is an encounter with God Himself. We're invited into the presence of God, and so when we pray, we're stepping into God's presence and speaking in the presence of our Heavenly Father with reverence and intimacy. We're brought near to God as His children. And our culture talks a lot about prayer, all the time, actually. You hear that. And, but it's in a way that removes the object of true prayer. The language that we hear in culture, at least that I see in culture around us, it, it reveals this, uh, this idea that the object of prayer is removed. People say stuff like this, well, my thoughts and my prayers are for you, right? The heck does that mean? Like, okay, so you're thinking of me and you're praying toward me, I guess. Like the object of prayer, the power of prayer, the, the only reason that prayer is good is completely removed from that sentimentalism, right? Why don't you just say, I love you, and I'm here for you, and I've been thinking about you. That's cool. But to pr- like, what are you praying to? Why, why are you pr- what do you mean? You're praying. My, you're like handing me prayers? As if our prayers have substance in and of themselves apart from the object of our prayer. In our culture, we're 100% okay talking about prayer as long as we don't mention God. And these prayers are like magical wishes that we grant people in hopes that they might actually work. There's no power in them. There's no substance in them. There's no identity in them. It reminds me of uh, the 1990s. And I, was in, I was in college and out of college and getting a job, and email was like this, the, the big thing that all of my older relatives were trying to like kind of figure out and understand. And I'd been using, uh, of course, email throughout college. And so as I'm sitting at my desk and I get this email from my uncle, and I was like, no way. He's on email. Like, this is so sweet. And it's just like, hey, Billy, just checking out the, you know, seeing if, seeing if this works, you know? <laughs> He's all excited, you know, and I was like, this is awesome. I'm actually going to be, like, I get paid to check my email. I'm actually going to be able to, like, have a relationship with my uncle now that he's, like, on email. And so I respond, and I'm like, dude, this is so good to hear from you. This is really great. You know, I'm shocked that you have a computer, you know. (laughs) And I get nothing in response. Nothing. Until a couple years later, he learned how to forward, like, political stuff. I still get that from him. But when, when I saw him at a family reunion the next summer, I was like, hey, it was so good to get that email. I, you know, I, I emailed you back. He's like, oh, no, yeah, I got that. I was just seeing if that email thing actually worked, you know, <laughs> just checking it out. See, he didn't want to talk to me. He wasn't trying to communicate with me. He was fixated on the process of email. He was fixated on the process of email where I was excited about this, this idea of having relationship with him, he, he wasn't thinking about relationship in that moment. He was thinking about, let's, let's just test this whole communication thing out. Now, that's rude. You would never do that to someone. I get it. But this is what we do when we remove God from prayer. We elevate the means to replace the end, you might say. And our culture has faith in faith, and our culture prays to no one. But the Bible doesn't present the science of prayer. The Bible doesn't teach us the art of prayer. The Bible only and always talks about the God of prayer. Prayer is not about prayer. Prayer is not about others. Prayer is about God. Prayer is about knowing God and knowing God's plans 
through prayer, through listening to God and speaking to God and participating in relationship with God. And Paul prays to God and he asks for specific things here. But before we get into the specific things that he asked for, I want to point out what Paul does not pray for. Because what Paul does not pray for is what I think many of us tend to pray for when we pray. Paul does not ask God to change anything about their circumstances. That's hard. My my prayers are like 90% circumstances. God, do this. Change that. Relieve this. Take that pressure off of that. Open the floodgates of heaven here, right? Close that. You know, always changing circumstances. And the reason for that is because Paul knows that if the Ephesian Christians actually have what he is praying for, then they can face any circumstance. So the issue wasn't their circumstance. The issue was their heart. And if they receive what Paul is praying for, they would be spiritually full, as he says. So what does Paul pray for? Let's read this again. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's an incredible prayer. What Paul is praying for here, primarily he's praying for the Ephesian church to be strengthened in their inner being, to be strong in the Lord, to have inner strength. Paul is praying for them to have and experience real power. But the power to do what? Like, what, what, what does this look like? Well, first of all, he, he prays for the power to be strengthened to experience life in Jesus. And then the language transitions to not just life in Jesus, but he's praying for life together in Jesus. This idea of us in Jesus and Jesus in us, it's really uh, just a way of talking about both sides of, of the same coin, you might say. Our faith in the indwelling of Jesus in us is fueled by the Holy Spirit. It's by the Spirit that Jesus dwells in our heart. And so he's appealing to the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit that is in these Christians to make what they know and what they have a reality in their life. Now, Paul has already identified the recipients of this letter to be Christians. Remember earlier in the book, He refers to them as people who have been sealed by the Spirit. That means people who have put their faith in Jesus and have received the Holy Spirit. So Paul is writing uh, to Christians. So why is he praying this prayer for them? It's interesting. He's praying this prayer specifically to Christians. They already have the Spirit. They're already in Christ. And so if they're Christians, isn't it already true that Jesus is in them? So why is Paul asking God for something that is already true of them? It's the question that's, you know, that this, this passage just begs. Since this is all already true of these Christians, what Paul is doing in this prayer is he's addressing a dissonance. He's addressing a disconnect 
between what they know in their heads and what has gripped them in their hearts. They're Christians. They, They have something in their heart, but there's a disconnect between what's happening down here and what's happening up here. There's a gap between what they know to be true and what they experience as their daily life. Their experience is their daily identity. It doesn't match up with what they know to be true. And like some of us, they might say something like this. Well, I know the truth that God loves me, but the reality is that I don't feel loved. And I'm actually consumed and driven by my need for love. See the disconnect. You're loved by God completely and thoroughly. We know that, but, but so often we don't feel that, do we? Or, or they might say something like this. I know that God has a plan for my life, but my life feels like a disorganized mess. They, they know something is, is, is true about God's plan for their life and that God has the power to lead them in it, but they're not walking in that. There's a disconnection. Or perhaps they'd say something like this. I, I know the truth that God is with me, but the reality is I feel totally alone. See, unfortunately, what is true does not always feel real to us, does it? There's a real danger for us in this, in this disconnect. When we, when we feel a disconnect, there's a real danger here. And the danger is for us to fake it and, and just become inauthentic or, or become shallow. And so we need to acknowledge this gap when it exists and receive what Paul is trying to teach us here by sharing this prayer with us. And Paul teaches us that the Holy Spirit causes what is true in our heads to become real in our hearts. God does that work. That is a work and a move of the Holy Spirit. We don't just know truth. We're to be gripped by the truth. And Paul prays for Christians to know God, not just in an intellectual way, but in a way that shapes our affections in a way that determines our identities, our our baseline, who we are in the middle of the night when we have financial stress or emotional stress or family stress or job stress. Who am I in the middle of the night? See, the, the reality of who we are in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit grips our heart. It is a reality that changes us and directs the way that we live. I think we all understand this distinction that Paul is making here between knowing about something and truly knowing something. And some of us here today might even say something like this, like, yes, I know God loves me, but it hasn't worked its way down where it grips my heart and affects my life. Like, your faith in God is is, kind of like a, a little kid Sunday school faith in God where you know all the songs up here, but it hasn't moved its way to changing and affecting anything down here. Back in 1734, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, and and he gives this incredible analogy of this. Uh, He gives the analogy uh, that there are two ways to taste honey, or two ways of knowing that honey is sweet, I should say. There's two ways you can know that honey is sweet. The first way is through rational mind and reasoning. He says that we can uh, understand the composition of honey, and we can understand the physiological nature of the tongue and how we taste and you can like, look at honey and the properties of honey, and you can look at the human tongue and taste bugs, and you can say, when that substance comes in touch with that thing right there, the end result, right, according to my calculation, is sweet. You could rationalize and figure out that honey is sweet. But the second way you can know that honey is sweet 
is to taste it. And the second way of knowing something allows for the first, right? You might taste honey and say something like this, well, I knew that it would be sweet, but now that sweetness is real to me. I've not just seen it, I have savored it in my mouth. And Edwards, Jonathan Edwards goes on to say that this, it's one thing to have the opinion that God loves me, but it is another thing to know that love in our inner being in a way that shapes our life. It's the, distant, it's the difference between reading the data on honey and just putting a spoonful of it in our mouth. Yes, we need to know that God is good. Yes, we need to put our trust in God. But we can't just stop there. We can't stop at simply intellectually knowing about God. The psalmist does a, a good job of, of pulling us in. In Psalm 34, verse 8, it's like this exhortation, this begging voice almost. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He goes, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. See, it's a call to experience what we already know. In our current Christian culture, there, there's this awkward tension between knowledge, knowing about God, and experience, experiencing the presence of God. It, it's an unfortunate tension that exists in our current Christian culture. And some people put too much emphasis on experience. They emphasize and focus on experiencing God and experiencing the presence of God at the expense of truth in Scripture. Sometimes that can happen, and they, people can err in that way. And then the opposite also can be true. Others will talk about experiencing God as if it's a bad thing. But see, this is a, a false dichotomy, if you will. We should experience what we believe. Otherwise, it's not true. We should experience what we believe to be true. If we believe in the doctrine of justification, we should expect to not feel guilty if we're in Christ. Right? That changes the way we live. If we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, we should expect to feel alive in Christ because we've been given a new life. If we believe in the return of Jesus, that He's coming again, we should live our life with hope. We should feel hope, real, tangible hope. If you believe that God loves you, you should expect to feel loved by God. It's not a hollow promise. It's not a muster up a feeling of love inside of you. It is a gift. It's something that the Holy Spirit does. The presence of God Himself connects this idea of love in our head to the reality that I am loved in my identity, in my heart, in my inner being. And these feelings that Paul is talking about, they're not simply emotions, right? Because emotions don't necessarily change your life. Emotions come and go. Listen, I've done a lot of youth ministry in the last couple months. I've seen a lot of emotions, okay? <laughs> I've, I've ridden that ride. Paul is talking about experiencing God's presence. He's talking about experiencing God's love in our inner self, in our inner being. A true experience of God's love in our inner being. That's not something that we're going to achieve intellectually. You could X plus Y equals God loves me all day long, but until you experience the love of God, it's not going to change your life. 
You're not going to step out in faith knowing that that's true and change things about your life. You're not going to make really like seemingly dumb financial decisions to obey God if you don't know that you know that God loves you and has called you to something other than making money. You're never going to change. We have to know and receive and not just intellectually know. We have to experience the love of God in order to be changed by the love of God, in order to walk in the love of God, in order to share the love of God. This is a gripping, powerful, life-altering, identity-shaping experience of God's Spirit in us. And Paul is praying that we would experience what we already know. But he's also praying that we would be transformed, that we would be changed by what we already have. That's a crazy prayer. He's like calling out Christians that have like something incredible inside, incredible knowledge up top, but just no communication between. We've been given so much in Christ, but often we find, our, we find ourselves wanting more, searching for more. I heard a story recently, and you guys are probably just as bad as me. You're going to laugh. And you're going to feel bad for laughing because it's a true story. So, there's a woman who wanted to bless her parents. There's older people. They're very frugal. And they wanted to, she, she was just helping, re, re, like, put a, the right kind of step stool in the kitchen and, you know, put, replace the kitchen counters and things like that. And uh, when she got to the bedroom, their bed was just this nasty, old, decades-old, worn-out thing. And, you know, she just saw her frail old parents going to bed on this thing every night. And she's like, you know what, I'm going to replace their bed. And so when they were out, she replaces their bed, right? Just out with the old, in with the new, beautiful new bedroom set. Her parents came home and, like, panicked. Like, jaw dropped to the floor. They nearly fainted. What she didn't realize is the parents had been saving money since before she was born and shoving it in their mattress. <laughs> and they calculated that she had discarded more than $200,000 in cash. Unbelievable. Here's why I share that story, aside from it's ironic and funny. At that time, just picture this. Picture the last night, these old bones on this bed. They're just like, oh, I'm so old and this hurts, right? Just not able to get comfortable. All that time, this couple endured this old, worn-out mattress while they're sleeping on top of a pile of money, right? They had the money. They just never tapped into it. They're people that had wealth. They just didn't, they didn't use it. See, Paul is praying for Christians who live their lives like this old couple was living their life, sitting on a treasure, but living in spiritual squalor. He's praying for a connection between what we have in Christ and how we live our lives. He's praying for the lives of Christians to be empowered by the power that is already in us. We need the Spirit, church, Reality Ventura, we need the Spirit to help us experience what we already know and what we already have. And it's important for us to see how the Spirit empowers us to do this. See, Paul's not praying for Christians to muster up more strength and love. Right? He's not like, just come on. This is a men's retreat. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. 
Function in that love. Go do something for God, right? That's not what he's saying. You don't find that in the New Testament. He's praying for the lives of the Christians to be empowered by God. Paul isn't telling him to fake it, right? Fake it until you make it. Pretend like you're a big, strong, you know, spiritually mature thing. And then eventually you'll, you'll get so good at saying that that people are going to believe you. And eventually you're going to get so far down your life at some point you're going to realize you're a facade. Paul's not saying fake it until you make it. Because if you fake it, you'll never make it. Paul is praying for us to tap into what we already have, what God has already done. Tap into a finished work. We don't muster up the strength to live powerfully. We rest in the Lord's strength, which is already in us, Christian. See, he prays that we would know the power of the Spirit, but also that we would know the love of Jesus. Because there's no no separation between this love and the power. The power of the Spirit leads us into the love of God. And the love of God leads us into the loving of others. Ephesians 3, look at the second half of verse 17 and 18. It says, he's praying that you would be rooted and grounded in love. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So first we saw that we need the strength of the Holy Spirit in order to experience what is already ours in Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to to enliven our hearts to what is real about us in Christ. But next, what Paul is saying is he's revealing our need for the Spirit to increase our capacity to grow into what we already have. We, We need the Spirit to increase our capacity to grow into what we already know to be true. My little Shemi, I don't know if you guys know my little four-year-old boy, he likes to tell me, he goes, Daddy, I love you to the moon and back. That's his little thing. My little Eden, she's now six, but when she was like his age, she'd be like, Dad, I love you this much. And she'd hold out her chubby little stubs that are about that far apart, you know, just. And I'd be like, Eden, I love you this much, you know, which is like three times more. And she'd be like, I love you, you know, whatever. See, what they're doing these little kids, but they're, they're grasping for words and they're grasping for analogies to try and communicate this strong feeling that they have inside of them. They're, they're, try, they're, they're, they're being stretched in love in that, mo- in that moment. Man, their parents, that's all a kid needs when they're four years old. And they're blown away and mesmerized and enlivened by our presence. See, similarly, Paul is praying for us, for Christians. Christians needing to grow into the love of God. He's praying for us to explore and become empowered to experience the indescribable reality of God's love and God's grace for us. That God will give you the capacity. God will give you the capacity to receive his love. And we need God to give us a greater capacity. Um, You guys probably know my wife and I have five kids. And people ask all the time, right? question, it's actually the the biggest question is just like, how many kids do you have? Because our van is so big. The second one is, how do you do it? How how do you, five kids, how do you do it? Right? And the question, I think we answer the question very similarly. It's like, first of all, I don't know if we're doing it. And second of all, if we are, I don't know how we're doing it. Right? (laughs) Seriously don't know. We were overwhelmed with the thought of having kids for the first nine years of our marriage. Didn't have kids. And then when we decided to adopt, 
So that's how we got our first kid. It was like, we were so overwhelmed. It was like, oh my gosh. Trying to squeeze this car seat in the back seat of our convertible and just, you know, it's like, man, life is so hard with a kid. It was so hard. <laughs> totally overwhelmed. Then right after we got faith, right after that, after all these years of being married, all of a sudden it's like, we're pregnant. And it's like, oh Lord, you know, you've cursed us. You know, what's, what's happening? <laughs> Well, fast forward to number three, okay? So we're in the hospital. Jerry's about to have Eden. That same month, our social worker calls us, and he's like, hey, we got number four for you, right? Sibling. We're just like, seriously? <laughs> like, like, oh my gosh, so overwhelmed. And then we had number five. Okay, now here's what it's like having your fifth kid. Okay, it's like you have an axe in one hand and a fire hose in the other, and you're literally inside of a structure fire. And you're like, you're inside, you're like, why am I inside? You're trying to put this fire out, and then someone hands you a baby right in that moment. And you're like... And the thing with number five is that he's like the most like emotionally like just needy. He just wants to be in my face. He wants to sleep upon me. Like he just wants so needy. So, and I'm like, Lord, how? Right? Like how? But see, it's so crazy as we've trusted God in just receiving and, and, and extending the love that he's offered to us in Christ. It's just he, he's, he's expanded our capacity. He's expanded our capacity to receive love, and he's expanded our capacity to extend love. And by God's grace, in this season of life right now, I've, I even have the bandwidth to care about and connect with dozens of like junior hires and high schoolers even. God does that in us, right? See, Paul is praying that God would increase our capacity here. And this is a capacity to not intellectually understand love, but to have a, a heart to be changed by it and a heart to carry it, not just receive it, but, but, but be the implement of it. That our hearts would grow in this. He's praying for God to stretch the boundaries of our understanding of God's love. And he, he uses these four little descriptors in our passage. This, God's love is wide, right? We know God's love is wide. It extends God's desires for every people, every nation, every tongue, tribe throughout the entire earth to know his love. God's love is eternal. It's, it's massive. God called us before the foundations of the earth, it says in Ephesians, to be holy in Christ. God's love is high. The angels worship and declare the glory of God and the love of God. God's love is deep. As the Apostle Paul points out here, God's love reaches down so far as to humble Jesus, even to the point of death on the cross. Even to the point of having the God-man not just crushed and bruised and beaten, but put into the ground in a grave. God's love goes even there. The love of God is mesmerizing. The love of God can be disorienting. But listen, until we fix our eyes on Jesus, Jesus brings the love of God into clear focus. If you want to know and understand the love of God, fix your eyes on Jesus. Because God's love is not just strong emotions. It's not what God's love is about. God's love is not about giddy feelings and giddiness and puppy love and doughy eyes. God's love is demonstrated by his willingness to sacrifice for us. 
verse we all know, John 3, 16. It says, For God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world so much that He gave. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 tells us that God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. That is love. See, this is the good news that Paul not only wants us to hear, he wants us to allow it to sink down into our hearts. This is the good news that needs to sink deep and produce a deep love for God and produce a deep love for others. This is the good news that needs to sink and ex- sink in deep and expand the bounds and expand the capacity for us to know God's love. And Paul prays that we would understand God's love, he says, with all the saints. That's a little thing that might seem archaic and weird and it's easy to skip over. But man, this is an important phrase. See, the picture that it paints, he's not saying that, that he's hoping that each of us go off by ourselves and have this sweet private moment with the Lord. No, that's, that's not what he's saying here. Paul's prayer isn't that we would be dazzled as individuals, but that we'd be captivated by the love of God and captivated by the family of God. As a family, that we would be compelled and captivated by God's love. That we, as a family, we would know God's love more deeply together. I believe it takes the whole family of God in order to grasp the whole love of God. This is a prayer for us to experience a move of the Spirit to take us deeper into knowing God's love. Now, we often get this exactly backwards. Um, We often think that if we love God more, God will love us more. But in this passage today, we see a genuine love for Jesus springs from an awareness of Jesus' love for us. If you want to love God more, Stop trying to love God more. If you want to love God more, be still and know that He is God. Receive His love for you. Your love from God is a response to God's love for you. He initiates the relationship. And the power that Paul is praying for is the Spirit who gives us an awareness and a sensitivity to God's love for us. This is the most powerful thing that we could ever lay hold of, the love of God. Knowing God's love for us completely changes us. And so this raises the question, why would anyone resist God's love? Why the dissonance? Why the disconnect? Why does Paul have to reiterate this to the Ephesians when they already know it? Why do we need to hear this over and over again? when we already know it as Christians? Well, maybe it's because you feel unlovable. If you feel unlovable today, you need to hear that you were created by God to be loved by God. You are not unlovable. You were created as the object of God's love, and God loves you because He is love. Or maybe it's because you feel that God must not fully know you. God does fully know you, and He still loves you. Or some people resist God's love because they feel like they don't deserve it. Well, I don't deserve God's love. That's actually true. You don't deserve God's love. But that's why God's love is such an amazing gift. 
Because God chooses to love you, even though you don't deserve it. And he gives himself, all of himself, in love for you. Undeserving recipient. Remember, in Jesus, you are made a child of God. God loves you so much, he doesn't just forgive you and then release you to go and, well, best of luck, right? No, he adopts you as a child into his family, where you can be with him, where you can sit with him, where you can speak with him. And finally, in verse 19, we see Paul praying for us to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, I love that expression, and it's kind of mind-blowing that we'd be filled up to all the fullness of God. So I was praying over this yesterday. Um, I have a favorite swimming hole here in the local mountains, but come like midsummer and fall, it's actually kind of nasty. Algae accumulates in it, it gets gross. So we usually hike up to it in the spring, early summer. You want to catch it when it's warm, but the water's still high. Because when the water's flowing, it flows to overflowing, and the fullness of the fresh water prevents the gross stuff from accumulating. It's fresh, and the water's clear, and it's beautiful. See, this is how I picture what Paul is saying here. For us to know the love of God to the extent that God's love fills us to overflowing. And it's that overflowing of God's love that pushes out the lesser loves in our heart. It's that overflowing of that, of like fresh water pushes out the algae. It pushes out inferior ideas about love. God's love pushes out lesser versions of love, lesser desires for love. As we overflow with God's love, that we would have an abundance of love to share. This overflow of love cleanses us and renews us and refreshes us and cleanses those around us and renews those around us and refreshes those around us as we're able to love people with a love that doesn't expect anything in return, with a sacrificial love. And this expression, to be filled to the fullness of God, it's really a way of talking about us growing up into maturity. Our maturity is directly related to our ability to understand and receive God's love. And we often think of Christian maturity as something that extends beyond the love of God, right? Like, okay, I get it. God loves me. Now I need to go out and do this. Now I need to go out and get, and get stuff done. I know God loves me. Now I'm going to go, right? But we'll only grow and mature as Christians to the degree that we understand God's love in a genuine and authentic way that changes us. We never step out or beyond the need for God's love. Paul prayed earlier that we'd be rooted and grounded in it. See, that's the kind of love that you don't just move beyond. We remain in it. We abide in it. And those, those two metaphors, right, to be rooted in it, to be grounded in it, those, those are pictures. They, they both are metaphors for growth. When something grows, our growth, our roots, our grounding comes out of and from and is deep into God's love. The love of God and the Word of God, that's the soil from which our love grows. It's the foundation upon which we build our identity. One thing that's in common with a, a building's foundation and, and a tree's roots, right? This, this idea of, of being rooted and grounded. It's like a tree in a building. One thing that's in common with roots and a foundation 
is that they're both buried. They're both hidden. They're both underground. See, what Paul is pointing to here with that vocabulary, using those specific words, he's talking about our inner self, the hidden places. Not just what we post on Instagram, not just like all the smiles on Facebook, right? The happy high fives, the the sweet moments, right? He's talking about our inner self. Who are you in the middle of the night when fear grips you? Paul is pointing to the to the place where we need to be changed, where that love needs to percolate to. And the goal is for the love of God to get to the core, to the inner man, for God's love to grip our hearts in a way that changes us. Yeah, it's totally contrary to culture, right? Culture says, man, you just put a nice coat of something on the outside and you're all good. People will like you. They'll want to be around you. You dress to impress. You'll get the deal, right? Just It's all on the exterior. See, Paul is praying for Christians to have an inward renewal. He prays for Christians who experience the Spirit revealing the love of God to them so that we might live our lives for the glory of God. Church, this is a prayer for kingdom family maturity. This is a prayer that we should be praying for ourselves and a prayer that we should be praying for one another. This is a prayer for revival in the hearts of Christians. This is a prayer for a revival in the church. Revival starts when people are gripped by the love of God. Revival starts when people yield to the Holy Spirit and take steps of faith into what is true. This is a prayer for revival, for personal revival, to to be reconnected in our inner selves with who we are in Christ. And in this season, as we grow as a kingdom family, church, let's pray this prayer for one another. Let's pray this prayer for us as a kingdom family, that we, each one of us, and that all of us corporately, that we would know and grow in the love of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. and Thank you for truth. And God, we also thank you for your Holy Spirit, which brings that truth into our heart and convicts us. That truth that, that the Spirit that carries that truth down into our inner being and gives us real hope. It gives us real healing. Gives us real reconciliation in relationships. We ask you today, Father, that you would move for the Christians in here, that those of us who know what is true about us, who have received that truth, Holy Spirit, for you to connect what is in our heads, what you've already placed in our hearts, that you would do that work in our inner being, that we would trust you, and that we would walk by faith. For those in here who have not put their faith in Christ, Holy Spirit, that you would move in their heart and in their mind, that you would reveal to them what is true. I ask you, God, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would say yes to putting their trust in Jesus, and yes to living a life led by God through the power of the Spirit. Church, we're just going to take a couple of moments, and with the lights down, 
I'm going to just pray in three ways right now. And the points will come up on the screen. The first way we're going to pray is individually. Let's pray for the Spirit to reveal the love of God to each of us. Let's just take a, take a minute and do that. Now let's add to that as we continue our prayer. Let's pray for God to increase our capacity to receive God's love. For God to increase our capacity to be changed by God's love. And for God to increase our capacity and our willingness to walk in God's love. Let's pray that now for a moment. God, as we pray for the Spirit to reveal the love of God to each of us, as we pray, God, for the Spirit to increase our capacity to receive and be changed by and walk in love, now we pray for your kingdom family here. We ask you, God, to fill us as a family, as a people, to overflowing with your love. God, cause your love to overflow, not just from each of our lives, but from your family here. That we would be a people who bring refreshment and hope and life and joy into the hopeless dark corners of Ventura and Ventura County. Thank you, God, that you are at work. You are not a sleepy God. You are at work and on mission. This morning we praise you and we thank you for being at work and on mission even in our sleepy hearts, God. We pray now as we worship you, Lord, that you would enliven us, connect our hearts with the truth of who you are, the truth of who we are in Christ. We worship you now in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.